welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved impressive things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Akud in Berlin, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. A warm hello to everyone out there listening in Lebanon, Canada, Sweden, and Senegal, and around the globe. Thanks for joining us, and please do share us with your friends and rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts, as that helps us reach new ears. We've got an uplifting story for you this episode, <laughs> and a literary treat at the very end, courtesy of Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dowsens, who is right here to help me introduce everything. Hello, Florian. Hi, Susan. Without further ado, let's introduce this lady. You could say she achieved great heights, Florian, if you please. Baha. Um, <laughs> um, so yes, uh, she did achieve great heights because she was in fact Germany's first female airship pilot, professional aerial acrobat, and the inventor of the folding parachute. Um, her name was Kate Paulus, and she's presented by our own very dear Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Derbyshire, who I should add is flying very high herself, having been freshly named the winner of the Strahlener Übersetzer Preis 2018, indeed, for her translation of the book Im Stein by Clemens Meyer, which you can find in English as Bricks and Mortar, and you very much should. Now up and away to Katie Derbyshire on Kete Paulus. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to talk about Kete Paulus. I'm just going to call her Kete. She was also called Ketchen, Katarina, Kete with an H, Kete with an out and H, um, which made my research a little bit difficult. But I'm going to start with a little bit of context for you. So here we have page six of the Daily Express newspaper of London from Wednesday. September the 9th, 1903. Just to show you what women were wearing back in 1903. You can see some smart frocks for cool days. Um, they're well covered up, as you can see. Basically, they're wearing a lot of possibly flannelette from head to toe. And also in September in London, they were obviously very worried about Qatar. There are two different ads for for Qatar remedies, right. Uh, so the ladies at the time, living ladies, were wearing long dresses and big hats. I'm going to show you Kieta Paulus in 1903. There she is. Now, I, Francis, who kindly did the door for us, remarked to me today, Katie, you're wearing trousers. Or I don't normally wear trousers on stage, but I'm wearing trousers in honor of Kieta, who wore these signature culottes if you like, really lovely knickerbocker style. She was, as you can see, by the fact that she's balancing on, tra on a trapeze dangling from a hot air balloon, not a typical woman of her times. Also 1903. Okay, I'm going back to the Daily Express, not my favorite newspaper. <laughs> Page one on that date. We see here on the, this is the bottom right, there's a whole German baiting section including, for a bit more context, the German empress was struck on the head by a bouquet <laughs> in an act of thoughtless loyalty. <laughs> there were heavy casualty lists at German manoeuvres. 
the Prussian government had started a campaign to prevent newspapers from criticizing the emperor, and a German man, man named John Miller was accused of threatening to shoot President Roosevelt in Syracuse, New York. But what I'm interested in here is this little column, Lady Aeronaut's Plight, which I'm going to read out to you. Berlin, Tuesday, September the 8th. The German Lady Aeronaut, Fraulein Polly, had a narrow escape from death when making a parachute descent at Nuremberg on Sunday. After she had dropped from her balloon and was falling with the parachute extended, she was caught by a current which carried her towards the town instead of away from it. By the time she was near the ground, she was directly over the town and perceived that she was in grave danger. In a few minutes, the parachute caught in the roof of a high, six-storied house and Fraulein Polly was left hanging over the edge of the roof, fully a hundred foot above the stone pavement beneath. She is a brave woman, but her courage began to give way when she saw that the ropes of the parachute, which had caught in the roof, were slipping and that in a few minutes she must be dashed to the ground. In this emergency, she began swinging herself to and fro and soon contrived to reach the windowsill of a room on the top floor. She clambered to it at the imminent risk of falling, forced open the window and threw herself into the room. A minute later, the parachute fell from the roof. Uh, yes, <laughs> beautifully written. So we know, we already know that Kieta Paulus was not a typical woman of her time. So Kieta was born in 1868 in a village called Zellhausen, which is in Hessen. She was the illegitimate daughter of a woman called Maria Funk, who uh, later married the blacksmith Wilhelm Paulus when Kieta was five. Uh, he adopted her, hence her surname, Kieta Paulus. The family weren't very well off. They moved around a lot looking for work. They mostly lived in and around Frankfurt. And Kitta left school at 14, which was typical. My grandmother did too. And trained as a seamstress, which came in very, very handy, as you'll learn, in unexpected ways. Uh, her adoptive father died in 1887, and Kitta supported her mother pretty much from then on. So inauspicious beginnings, and Kita's life took a strange turn away from this unspectacular poverty. She later wrote, In 1890, I met the balloonist Latterman in my hometown of Frankfurt. His audacity and boldness impressed me, and when he invited me to take a flight with him, my mind was made up. I had to become a balloonist. Who could resist? <laughs> Hermann Letterman. Uh, who could resist these beautiful, beautiful sideburns and cap ensemble? Certainly not Kid Paulus. She probably first saw him in Wiesbaden in 1899 while she and her mother were um, staying there. When they met, he was 36 and she was 20, and as you can see, he was a bit of a ladies' man. <laughs> Here he is earlier on. This is an artist's impression. Here he is in 1884, 
being bold and audacious, balanced beneath what looks to me like a giant inflatable backside. <laughs> Kita was impressed though. It was some time, she wrote, before my teacher decided to let me take part in his balloon ascents. He was well aware of his responsibility. At last, in the summer of 1893, I was allowed to go on my first balloon flight. Now, what she doesn't tell you there is that the real reason why she, it took her uh, three years to go on the balloon flight was because she had Latterman's baby in uh, March 1891, their son, Willy Paulus. Kita was still living with her mother, but apparently Latterman used to go and visit. <laughs> so she basically, he taught her, uh, he showed her the ropes, literally, um, and he, he taught her all about the safety aspects of, of ballooning and parachuting, which was his job. Um, and she learned about the uh, about how to to mend the balloons and the parachutes with her sewing skills and she set about improving them anyway let's go back to that first flight in 1893 have we got any balloonists in the room <laughs> oh yeah our resident balloonist is in in scotland sadly um so on that first flight in 1893 Latterman jumped out of the balloon in his parachute, and Kita's job on her first flight was to land it safely on her own with a passenger on board. This was not, even then, the usual procedure for anybody's first ascent in a balloon. <laughs> so having started boldly and audaciously, on her third flight, she jumped out with a parachute as well in the pouring rain making her Germany's first lady parachutist. So, as you can see, she was soon sharing the bill with Latterman, becoming Germany's first professional lady balloonist. And here, so here we see uh, Latterman, his face probably wasn't actually printed on the balloon, but you never know, um, performing his, he was doing a, a plain old, plain old hot air balloon ascent, Herr Latterman, and, and Käthe, Fräulein Paulus, was doing the Doppelfallschirmabsturz, which was a trick that uh, Käthe invented herself, the double drop. She would jump from a great height, 1,200 meters, using two parachutes, and she wrote about it. Now comes a moment of excitement for the audience on the ground. I close my eyes and plunge down into the sheer depths. For three to four seconds, the parachute plummets 60 meters. Then the silk canopy billows out above me and the greatest danger is over. I sway relatively slowly down towards Mother Earth and prepare for the second drop, which takes place in exactly the same manner. So she would thrill her audiences by jumping out of a balloon, sheer drop, parachute, Jettison the first parachute, sheer drop again, second parachute, wow. <laughs> so if you can read both German and Fraktur, you'll know the spoiler is that, that shockingly Latterman died in 1894. All the more shockingly because um, it was in a ballooning accident. Kita had already jumped safely with her parachute, 
but wind seized their balloon and basically she, she was forced to watch as Latterman plummeted to his death and she could do nothing about it. They had been planning to marry but hadn't quite got around to it. Um, and, and Keita took the blow very seriously. She, she took to her bed for several months. But she was encouraged to go back to ballooning and parachuting by fan letters from all around the world. And probably she needed the money too. Tragedy struck again just over a year later in July 1895 when uh, Keita's four-year-old son really died of diphtheria. So she threw herself into her work. She became an international star, performing as Miss Polly, as the, the Daily Express mangled in the beginning. She was not called Fräulein Polly, she was called Miss Polly, even in Germany. Um, and she did ascents and jumps in London, Nice, Vienna, Amsterdam, Berlin, Budapest, Danzig, Paris, and mostly in Frankfurt, which is where these uh, posters that I'm going to show you from. She, being a seamstress, made all her own balloons and parachutes, and she uh, put advertising on them for extra income. She sold up to 20,000 tickets for her appearances. I mean, they would have been in, uh, in Frankfurt, they were mostly in the zoo. Here you can see her beautiful American-style parachute here with the stars and stripes. Here's the uh, patent-pending first parachute balloon in the world. She didn't get a patent on it, another spoiler, with her, again, dangling from a trapeze, none of this basket business. Um, <laughs> and here, I don't know what this actually is, <laughs> but I love the way she seems to be flying on a giant bat. <laughs> Again, an artist's impression. Now, you have to remember that this was early 20th century by this time. Uh, there wasn't a lot else going on. So here we, people would pay, people would pay to see the, her just filling the balloon up with air. Here we can see <laughs> some very enthusiastic looking children. Uh, the day before, her balloon ascent in, in Herborn in 1909. They, they, so these kids, there was nothing to, you know, I'm not going to say what they would do now, but they would not be going to watch someone put gas into a, into a balloon, right? And looking so happy about it. Um, <laughs> and here, can you, I hope you can see that at the back. That is, is uh, Keita just dangling without a, without a basket from a balloon the next day in Herborn. Okay, here comes everyone's favorite photo, certainly my favorite photo of Kita Paulus. Daringly clambering over the edge of her basket in a photo studio. Um, and uh, uh, you can see, what's important about this picture is that you can see the, the, her two parachutes uh, attached to this uh, bar at the, in the middle part of the balloon. And what's important here is that they're in bags. Now, uh, this was kind of <laughs> groundbreaking because before this, they know that before this, honestly, that they had just kind of bundled up parachutes and kind of hung them up on a hook inside the balloon and they would get tangled and ripped. And a lesser feminist than I might say, well, it, of course, it would take a woman to put a parachute into a bag, but um, <laughs> anyway, so Keita, uh, that would be belittling her invention 
for which she applied for a patent in 1910. This is the Paulus parachute. It was described as a rescue apparatus for aeronauts. She didn't actually get the patent until 1922. Now, a modern-day expert on parachutes describes this as follows. Contained in a canvas bag, the Paulus parachute was packed first, followed by the lines and suspenders, and hung on the balloon basket suspension bar, the twin lines to the observer's harness protruding from the bag and being clipped to the harness. Here you can see a man with a harness clipped to the balloon. This made for a quick getaway when required, the observer's body, so the, the balloonist's body, body weight being sufficient to snap the light string holding the parachute in its case, allowing the latter to deploy lines first as he fell, with the canopy deploying and opening glass of all. So basically, it's a parachute. <laughs> in a bag. So, here comes the Berlin part, because Kirte and her mother moved to Reinickendorf in 1912, as you do. And she set up her own company making parachutes in Gotthardstraße, number 105, where I went last week, lovely sunny day. This is where she uh, worked and lived. Um, yes, she moved to Berlin to be closer to you know, people who might buy parachutes, and she offered them to the Prussian War Ministry. So because it was 1914, she thought they might come in handy. And... Two years later, the Prussian War Ministry thought, actually, yes, they might be quite a useful thing to have in a war. Uh, that uh, We're going back to that modern-day expert on parachutes. Starting mass production of the Paulos in early 1916, the Germans were soon producing 125 of these lifesavers per week, and by war's end, they had manufactured over 7,000. Now, when he says the Germans were producing, what he means is Kita herself was producing because it was her working from home here in Gotthardstraße who made, yes, 125 parachutes a week. Initially, just all on her own, then she started employing seamstresses, but she did cut every parachute herself, cut the silk and later on cotton, for which they gave her a medal. And later on, Berlin, the city of Berlin, gave her this plaque which says, Kirte Polos, 1868-1935, the first German lady balloonist and lady parachutist lived and worked in Gotthardstraße from 1912 to 1935. I took that photo, and made it better. Um, <laughs> so she's invested during the war... She'd, she'd invested her money in war bonds. She was a bit patriotic, which, of course, didn't go terribly well after World War I. Uh, so all her money was gone. She lived in, in relative poverty. There was no more ballooning for her. But people did still remember her. And here she is in 1933, celebrating the 40th anniversary of her first parachute jump, still wearing that natty little hat. So she's buried just in the next street. Uh, she died of cancer in 1935, age 66. It would be quite handy if she had any living relatives, but no. Berlin is very proud of Kirte Paulus and has shown as much by naming two streets after her. So we have, first of all, we have Katharina Paulusstraße at Hauptbahnhof. Isn't that lovely? 
And then we have Kate Paulus Zeile in Gato. Ah, here we are. Kate Paulus Zeile near to the military airport, full of life and glamour. But actually, you, you saw Laura earlier. Laura drove me and her friends car last week to the most impressive uh, Kid Paulus street. This is no, this is no longer in Berlin. This is in Brandenburg, of course, on the the still building site of our illustrious future airport. <laughs> Here we have Kid de Paulus Ali. So she has her own street sign, a little explanation. First German lady balloonist. Um, it's, it's, it was a lovely day. <laughs> we had a very good ex ex expedition. Nobody ever walks down this road. It's blocked at one end. We tried to get through. The security guys were like, what do you want? No, it was very hard to explain. Anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know. They weren't. So, Kid de Paulus, I'm really impressed by her. She's inspired millions, probably, of women to take to the skies. For instance, this notional Chinese parachutist from the 1950s. And um, does anyone know who this is? She's still alive. It's Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space who started her career by joining a parachuting club. There's Kete. I'm just going to sum her up, really. She was an impressive woman. She made 516 balloon ascents, 147 parachute jumps, and she only ever broke one leg once. Well, as far as I know, it was quite, it's, there's not a lot of information there. I, I bought a book about her and it was this thin and half of it was a list of other lady flying people. Anyway, um, she, she did buy a plane and take flying lessons in 1911, but she never got her pilot's license. And people think that it was probably because she, she loved the peace and quiet in the balloon which is, it makes it kind of ironic that they keep putting her street near to airports. <laughs> so I'm going to end up with something about what Kita loved, what took her from a really quite unpromising start in life through loss and struggle to becoming a woman with streets named after her. She wrote in 1909, I have ascended into the blue skies 442 times, sometimes swathed from below by dense clouds. Above them, the heavens unfurled in all their timeless majesty before me and my fragile vehicles. Here, the sun sent its glinting rays down to the sea of clouds and created, far from the noise of the earth deep below me, an indescribable splendor in endless space. Katie Derbyshire on Kate Paulus. Now for something completely different. Uh, Florian, what's that you've got there? I've got a copy of the newly reissued Elsa Lanchester herself, um, which after a big Facebook campaign was republished by Chicago Review Press um, just last month. We had a wonderful show about Elsa Lanchester, which I, uh, in which I made great use of this great memoir. 
and I recommend you should all get it. The reason I brought it is because I wanted to share some of the other amazing Dead Lady memoirs that I have been turned on to both recently and in the past. Elsa Lanchester being the actress perhaps best known for her title role in The Bride of Frankenstein. So let's do our book club then. Uh, did you want to read something for us first? Um, what I would like to do is to give credit where credit is due. Um, and that credit in this case for this reissue of Elsa Lanchester's memoir should go to a man named Tom Blunt, who I first read about on the gay internet or on gay Twitter, who found this book in a thrift shop and um, was as delighted as I would be eventually and basically started a big online campaign to get it reissued. In his uh, recent interview that he did for um, a website, which we will put in the show notes, he talked about some other Dead Lady memoirs that direly need to be reissued or go back into print. And of course, I ordered all of them immediately. So they include, for instance, um, Anne Miller, who was a dancing and acting miracle. Um, and her memoir is called Miller's High Life. <laughs> because of course it is. <laughs> he also noted memoirs by Tallulah Bankhead, which I was already in possession of. And uh, yeah, the last book I ordered was actually the two memoirs by Shelley Winters, who is now perhaps most remembered for her sort of tragic, campy turns in the Poseidon Adventure and various sort of schlocky horror movies. But she started off in beautiful films including A Place in the Sun I want to say with Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Cliff that is just a beautiful and very tragic film um, and the memoirs are called Shelley also known as Shirley that's the subtitle and Shelley 2 <laughs> and I thought I would read you a little bit from Shelley 2 if that's okay let's hear it so this is the start of part one, which is called International Star of Stage, Screen, and Schwab's Drugstore. And do we need to say what Schwab's was? It was a place where you could get a soda and where stars were discovered, right? Rita Hayworth was discovered there, I want to say. Yeah, it was, a, it was sort of an ice cream bar at a drugstore that for some reason all the lovely ladies who wanted to be uh, somebody went and sat and were able to be discovered there. Exactly. Anyway, it starts like this. Early in 1954, I was returning from Europe, more exactly Rome, and as I flew westward on the TWA Clipper, I looked out the window and examined my life and the Aurora Borealis. In those days of prop planes, you often stopped at Shannon, Ireland, or Gander, Newfoundland, en route to New York. I was sleepless and in despair. Here I was, an international movie star and an internationally rejected sex goddess. My divorce from Italian matinee idol, Vittorio Gassman was on the front pages of the world press. As I tried to sleep on that long-ago plane ride, I'd already forgotten and changed everything so that it was all his fault. Never mind that he didn't want to become an American movie star and live in Hollywood for the rest of his life. Never mind that I didn't want to become an Italian actress and live in Italy for the rest of my life. The whole goddamn plane was fast asleep, only I, barefoot and girdleless, roamed the aisle. I was afraid to have another drink. My feet, my soul, my teeth and hair felt rejected and sleepless. Before I had left Rome, I'd gone to a pharmacy and bought a hundred secondal suppositories. It seems to me that most medicine in Europe is prescribed in suppository form. I guess that's because they don't always have bottled water handy. In 1954, you didn't need prescriptions for those things. 
After I'd paid my lire and had the medicine safely in my purse, I asked the Italian pharmacist, how come you don't need a prescription for these dangerous sleeping things? The man fixed me with a fishy eye and said in English, Signora Gassman, in the whole history of Italian medicine, no one, but no one has ever committed suicide in that fashion. So I'd used two of these secondal suppositories and had two martinis, but I still felt as though I would never sleep again. I date my chronic insomnia from that flight. Only later did I realize that my feeling of unattractiveness was a product of my life conditioning, not that divorce. I felt I could not be desirable unless I was attached to a desirable man. As I sat on a plane that night so long ago, I remember wondering whether all other American women had the same conviction and made the same mistakes I had. Even now, I wonder if women's lib arrived too late for women of my generation. When I think of the victim roles that I fought for and for which I often got nominations and twice Oscars, I hope I was helping raise the public's consciousness so that the process of rectifying the age-old plight of women could begin. Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan say that that's what I was doing, and I hope they're right. Um, for the rest of it, you'll have to buy Shelley 2. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's amazing because when you brought up Shelley Winters, I just thought, oh, God, Shelley Winters. The only way I know of her is sort of as a punchline, and this was, a, she did end up in some ways. Um, but she had these very memorable memorable roles. You mentioned uh, A Place in the Sun. She was also in um, Night of the Hunter. Yes, right? Which the is, very best movie of all time. It is a terrifying and amazing film with great acting in it. Directed and, by Elsa Lanchester's husband. Right. Perfect link. And um, she plays the mother in the film of Lolita. Of, yes. With Peter yes. Sellers. And James Mason, I think, is the... As the Humbert Humbert, yes. Um, and Sue Lyons, I think, plays Lolita. And, and this is a role in which she really is making fun of herself. And she's kind of the butt of a lot of jokes. And this is how she ended up being portrayed in, at the, in the later years of her career, which actually did go on quite long. Um, she went from being an ingenue to being this sort of like matronly, yeah, butt of jokes. And at least she's kind of realized this and, and fought for these roles and did the best that she could with them. And I think um, you can even see her in Portrait of a Lady uh, with Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman and it's... Um, John Malkovich. Yeah. Uh, so she she kept going and she really worked throughout her career, but she was dealing with, as you hear in this excerpt, these kind of like image issues and Hollywood wasn't nice to women over a certain age if they were nice to women at all. Yeah. No, and that's, I think, what I like about these Dead Lady Memoirs. It's not only the camp appeal. This excerpt sort of started off funny and, and sort of silly, but they were all self-aware women who had very rich lives and most of us have only seen their performances on screen uh, and they don't necessarily know what was going through their heads as they were shooting these campy delights so that's why i really cherish my shelf of my growing <laughs> ever-growing shelf of dead lady memoirs and i look forward to sharing more of it at the next show very good. So what are your favorite lady memoirs, dead or alive? We'd love to add them to our list. Send them by email to info at deadladyshow.com or tweet us at deadladyshow or find us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll put your recommendations and ours on the website, deadladyshow.com, where you can also find the show notes and copious photos of daring balloonists and dashing mustaches. 
Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud, which also hosts all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. We are also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, and Google Play Music. Thanks to Florian and all of you for joining us. See you next time. I'm Susan Stone. Thank <laughs> you.